first lady had a brother-in-law fighting for the Taliban, we'd hear about it. What happened in the Civil War when Mary Todd's relatives fought for the Confederacy? We'll find out when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. On Sound Authors, you can expect the unexpected. Kent Gustafson, Ph.D., author, publisher, professional musician, and now talk radio show host, will not only entertain you, but with new books and guest authors from around the world, will interview talented, independent musicians showcasing their fresh new music. Plan to join Dr. Kent and friends each Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on World Talk Radio Studio A. Sound Authors, where authors sound off. What's it like? What's it like? It's lonely. It's really lonely. I miss my brother. I miss my brother. I'm surrounded by other people, but it's not the same. I've got other people around me, but it's not the same. It's pretty scary, but I don't let it rattle me. It's scary around here, but I don't let it rattle me. You always have to watch your back. There's no one to watch my back. I spend my whole day worried who's out to get me. I'm always wondering who's out to get me. But I can take care of myself. But I can take care of myself. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. No matter what, I'll keep my head up. It's not like I have a choice. It's not like I have a choice. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. This will all be over in five years, three months, and 17 days. Go to jail for a gun crime and your family serves a sentence with you. Something to think about before committing a gun crime. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows! Said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors! Said the second. Let's look for a swing set! Said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows! Cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors! cried the second. I hope it has a bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Stephen Barry, not that Stephen Barry, the other Stephen Barry, the author of All That Makes a Man, and the book we're talking about right now, House of Abraham, a history of the Todd family and its relationship with Abraham Lincoln. The Todd's a family divided by war. Um, Stephen, before we get back to the subject, I, I've always been meaning to ask a guest this, and I keep forgetting. Um, could you hear the commercial played during the break? I can. Um, and do you feel you're less likely, more likely, or no change in your likelihood to commit a gun crime? About the same. About, About the same, same, I have to say. Uh, no impact. I was hoping that would you know, reduce the amount of gun crimes among 
certainly among authors who would <laughs> right, right. participate <laughs> well, in maybe, Yeah, maybe. If I had an itchy trigger finger um, to begin with, maybe it would have scratched a little bit. Um, but since I don't, I, I don't think I'm any more likely to commit a gun crime. So it did, didn't encourage or discourage you either? Not, you, not pretty really. Pretty much zero no. to begin with, I would guess. Yeah, I didn't really put myself in that situation. Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the commercial they play before the first segment, urging you to stay in school, I always... I, I like that one too because most of the authors are pretty much done with school. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but maybe the listeners are, are right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of people who act irrationally, right? Uh, let, let's get back to Mary Todd Lincoln. Sure. Um, you, in the beginning chapters of your book, you talk about, as you said, the Todds, uh, and uh, certainly Mary had uh, some some issues in her childhood with her father's remarriage, but. Um, as, as a Lincoln guy, my question is, is what is your take on the, the relationship between uh, the, the courtship, the early relationship between Mary Todd and Abraham Lincoln? Um, there, there's, there's, there's a much debated question of how did their engagement break up? Uh, right, and the, the fatal first. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I still don't think that we know what happened on the fatal first. If indeed it was anything related to the Lincolns at all, it might have been um, a date of significance to Speed, Joshua Speed, uh, the only man Lincoln ever poured his heart out to. Um, but as far as their courtship goes, I think you know, I think I, I followed the line of Douglas Wilson, who I think has done some of the best work on uh, on early Lincoln, and I see. I think sometimes we ask the wrong questions of marriage, particularly back in that uh, day and age. How did they forge such a political partnership? <laughs> I don't think that's a, a relevant question for them. I think that they passed uh, the easier test of courtship. What do you look like? Well, you know, she was handsome enough, and he, while odd-looking, uh, would have uh, looked like Henry Clay to her, um, whom she was had a crush on. Uh, from girlhood. So they passed that very superficial test and the other superficial test of what do you like? And they were both both very political. They were riding a wave of Whiggish success in 1840. Um, and they were thrown much together. And they were young. So I think that's it more than anything else. And then uh, marriages are made on less than that sometimes. And then they just coast along in that period and sort of a ghost ship of unhappiness. And I think that's basically what happened to the Lincolns. Uh, I think he felt honor-bound to marry her. I think she wanted to be married. Uh, I think maybe there is something to this notion, if you look at uh, the date of Robert's birth, that they had had sex, and that that's one of the reasons for this rushed re-engagement and wedding. Um, but it was certainly a stormy, stormy courtship. For the benefit of our listeners, the, the date of Robert's birth is like eight months and 20-plus days mm -hmm. after the wedding. Is that right? Yes. So it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's clearly possible that he was born uh, premature. So mm -hmm. um, I don't want to make too much of it until we know more. It's it's hard to say for sure. But something suspicious happened. Mary doesn't seem to me to be the sort of person who would have not wanted the hoopla uh, of of a real wedding. She would have wanted to take her turn on the stage. So the fact that they determined to get married and get married uh, in hastily in her sister's parlor uh, with just whoever they could pull together. And her sister doesn't even get to make arrangements, and her sister was a person who loved to make arrangements. So something strange happened. Hmm. And, and no, no new evidence 
tells us. I didn't come that. up with any. No. So, so we wonder what brings them together. Um, they they forge a successful political partnership. Uh, certainly, one that gets them into the White House eventually. Yes, and I I do agree with that. I sometimes the idea that um, Mary is behind her man, pushing him all the way, and he's reluctant to to do this. I think is, is again sort of casting our perspective uh, back on the on the past. I, I think Mary had extraordinary ambition, but Lincoln's was equally extraordinary. Uh, the engine that knew no rest, and I think, you know, he had it running full throttle, at least by uh, the mid-1850s, so uh, I think she, I think they both had ambition enough for four people. While we're on the subject, um, let me ask you a question about the book before we get to the Todds and, and Lincoln at War, which I definitely want to discuss. The, um, the style of writing in the book is not traditional academic language. We talked earlier about the importance of writing brief, strong mm-hmm. prose, uh, which everyone agrees with in theory, but not a lot of people accomplish. Um, you, you frequently uh, address the reader. You write sort of second-person uh, uh, sentences where, where you ask the reader a rhetorical question or where you uh, use irony or, or mm-hmm. other techniques that make make it almost conversational at times, uh, highly readable, very entertaining, not uh, not the kind of thing you write in a dissertation typically, and this was not your dissertation, I right. understand. Well, I, you know, this is sort of a larger argument that I have with the academy generally, but I think that what historians or academic historians have done, in effect, is to take a treasure trove of the world's greatest stories, and they're stories that really happen to real people. And they've given them away to journalists to write and write inaccurately. Um, I think that's a mistake. I think that we as an academy have paid all kinds of attention to what we write and not enough to how we write. And so I was trying to write this with a little more verve. Um, But that stems mostly from an argument that I have with the academy. And I I think it needs to change, and I think it will change. I think that we'll win our audience back because it's our obligation to be uh, talking to them and telling these stories and telling them accurately. You're, you're preaching to the choir here. I, I could not agree with you more. Um, and and, and I, I tried to do the same in Did Lincoln Own Slaves? And uh, our interviewer at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop made that observation. Bjorn Skaptis mm-hmm. talked to us, pointed out that both of our books were, on occasion, funny. Right, uh, right. Which... In, in academic writing, is just you know, not to be done. Right. Um, these were both of our second books. Right. Um, I felt I had the freedom to to do this. I was over the the hurdle of getting hired somewhere. Right. Uh, did how was yours received by your colleagues? And, and did I you actually, I you know, I think uh, I think that uh, it's been received well. I shouldn't say that because I don't actually have tenure here yet. I'm at the University of Georgia. And I did write this, the, my first book. It was my dissertation and then with, uh, became a book with Oxford University Press, published in 2003. And uh, it was more along the tr- traditional model. Uh, now, this book is published with Houghton Mifflin, and so it's supposed to reach a wider audience. And so I think this is what historians should do. They need to be able to write in a variety of voices. If they're addressing their colleagues, they can use a shorthand. They can use a little more jargon. 
that's okay. Uh, but it's it it still ought to be clear. I mean, uh, we ought to strive for clarity regardless. But if we are addressing a more popular audience, it still needs to be accurate. That is our charge from the get-go. Um, but but then it's okay to have verve. It's okay to play a, a little. And in fact, I think it should be encouraged. And I think that the academy is going to move in this direction. I guess I'm sort of betting on it because uh, I'll have my tenure decision here pretty soon, and we'll we'll find out. Well, I, I can't imagine uh, with a book as as well received uh, as this is. I look every day on Amazon to see how uh, to see how you're doing, and <laughs> I incidentally notice my book is there too. Right. Um, and yours is, is ahead of mine by a space or two uh, on the Lincoln list each time, and well deserved. Uh, it, it is really a, uh, an entertaining book. Uh, one of the one of the few on this show where if I haven't finished it by showtime, I often put it put the book aside and start next week's book. Um, I'm, I'm enthralled by what I have read of this and will... And you can be consoled that it won't take you very long. And it won't take me long. That, that, that's <laughs> very reassuring. That, right. That, uh, uh, it's not a lifetime commitment. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I admire Gordon Ray's work, but uh, as I pointed out uh, when I interviewed him, it would at the rate he's going a day per book in the wilderness, it'll be 2082 before he finishes the war. Absolutely um, right. Well, and, and it would take me that long to read them all. They're right. wonderful, but they're big. Well, part of the reason I think this is shorter, too, is that there actually weren't that many good, juicy documents out there. And as an historian, you have, you know, you're at the limit of the, of the historical record. So I think that's probably one of the reasons it hadn't been written before. I mean, clearly it's a topic that suggests itself. It is the war and, uh, writ small inside of one family that can serve as a symbol, a symbol for the national family. So I think somebody would have written it before if there if the there have been more records. Now, I found a lot of new stuff, um, but I didn't find a ton of juicy stuff, and I just didn't want to fluff it up. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to keep it lean, so I think that's another reason that it's a little shorter. Well, when we look at the Todds as a microcosm, uh, we do see most of them fighting on the Confederate side. Uh, some are well-known, uh, but uh, there was one uh, who fought at Shiloh, or who was killed at Shiloh. Is that right? That's right. Um, Tell us that story. Sure. Samuel Todd had attended Center College in Kentucky, and then he moved to New Orleans after his father. I should start at the beginning. There are 14 Todds, mercifully not all born to the same mother. So there are six of them uh, born to to one woman, uh, Elizabeth Parker, and then there are eight born. Uh, of course, Robert remarries. He's not going to deal with six kids on his own. Almost all widowers in that day and age remarried. And he proceeded to have uh, eight more kids with Elizabeth Humphreys. So that brings it to 14, which is a large family, even by the standards of the day. The thing we have to be quick to understand is they understood themselves or were understood by everybody else as brothers and sisters. They never used the half-sister, half-brother term. It wasn't used then. Lots of families lost uh, a mother in, uh, to childbearing, and all widowers remarried. So they understood That's themselves. That's Lincoln's father. Yeah, exactly, uh, precisely. So uh, in 1849, though, the sort of the linchpin of that family dies, Robert S. Todd, and it sets up a, a diaspora particular among these Todd males who were sort of waiting for scraps to fall off the family table. As I'd said, Lexington is sort of a dying town. It's actually the Todds' fault. They'd located this town near no real navigable uh, waterways or ports, and that's how most of the uh, economic traffic is moving in that day and age. Uh, so Cincinnati... 
uh, seeing a, a lot of action, but not Lexington. So the boys drift away, or many of them do. And one of them was Sam, and he moved to New Orleans, where uh, his uncle had a sugar plantation. I don't think he worked on the plantation. I think he mostly lived in New Orleans. Um, and so he was there uh, in 1862 when they needed reinforcements at Corinth to try to regain some of the territory they'd lost as the Union juggernaut rolled down the river in the spring, uh, Fort Henry and Donaldson, et cetera. Um, and so he was one of these reinforcements. So he's kind of a sad figure, really. He joins up as a private. He's absolutely desperate to see some action. And he marches practically straight into Shiloh. I mean, his entire Confederate service has lasted a month, uh, and battle service lasts a day and a half. He makes it through the first day of Shiloh and dies on the second, uh, shot through the back while retreating. So there isn't much heroism there. Now, what was intriguing to me, and this is some of that getting at some new information, is that because I, now online you're able to search, I search for every instance of the word Todd in every newspaper database that I could find. And so I find his death, uh, notices of his death in Davenport, Iowa, in New Hampshire, in uh, Massachusetts, uh, all over the all over the United States. They're and he was just a private. A private's death at Shiloh. And so you have to ask yourself, why? why? I mean, he's certainly the most noticed uh, death of a private at Shiloh is this guy, Sam Todd, whom nobody knows. He's had no career in the Confederate Army, and he lasted only a day and a half. Well, it's because he models for the nation this weird war that they're fighting, and that they're all at some subconscious level understanding is dysfunctional. Uh, they all have family ties that they're trying to bury or friends on the other side or ties that they've had to cut. Uh, and so it's sort of disturbing, intriguing um, uh, also to them, and so I think that's why they bother to notice it. So he, he again represents, as, as the other Tons do, uh, the, the, what the war brings to each family. A more famous Todd relative killed in battle is the one who dies at Chickamauga. Right, uh, and the uh, husband of uh, the Lincoln's little sister, that's what they called uh, Emily Todd. Um, Emily Todd was their favorite by far. Um, Mary really wanted to bring Emily up uh, sort of, at, you know, usher her into womanhood, do all the things that uh, Mary's sister Elizabeth had done for her. So when it became clear that uh, Kentucky was going to be divided, Abraham Lincoln invited Benjamin Hardin Helm, uh, Emily's husband, to the White House and offered him really uh, the best job he could without congressional approval, which is a, a job in the Paymaster Corps, and offered to post him you know, to the West, to somewhere else, um, wherever he could get out of the unpleasantness. And he said that, you know, the hardest day of my life was the day I turned down my brother-in-law's generous offer. He goes on to become Brigadier General in the Orphan Brigade and is killed at Chickamauga, as you say. But then the real irony um, is that then Emily needs to return from Atlanta after Hardin's uh, burial get back to Kentucky to do that. She has to go through Union lines. Um, she tries to go through Fortress Monroe. They ask her to take the oath. She refuses to do so. They're not sure what they're going to do, so they wire Lincoln, and Lincoln says, send her to me. So she, she spends a week in December 1863 in the White House. She is the wife of a slain Confederate general. And as you say, this would be like having an Al-Qaeda operative for dinner. Um, it's absolutely unthinkable now, and even then, uh, it was going to cause a scandal. 
Well, uh, this brings us to a time. I think we'll take another break here as the, the music plays. Uh, but it is a fascinating story, the death of, of, of Helm and, and the treatment of his, his wife by the Lincolns. We'll come back and talk more about that with Stephen Barry when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> <laughs> 